if he lived in 2023, Paul would be on incredible amounts of Lexapro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's not having a great time in Dune either. Welcome to All My Friends Are English Majors, the podcast where I, a business major, make my friends, almost all English majors, read popular fiction with me. This month, we do not have an English major. Shocker. Sam is back. My boyfriend Sam is back. We are reading Dune. Sam, I think you're the number one Dune expert in my life. Do you want to Do you want to talk about what makes you qualified to talk about science fiction? Uh, well, I have a STEM major. It's a big prereq. Um, qualified to talk about science fiction? I've read Dune. I've seen the new movie Dune. I haven't seen the old Dune movie. And I've watched I've read the the five books that Frank Herbert uh, the author of Dune wrote as sequels. I haven't read. I haven't read any of the the Dune books written by Frank Herbert's son Brian Herbert because I've heard they're not very good. Okay, so you you have a lot of Dune lore in there in your brain. Quite a bit. I've read them pretty recently. I think last year I finished uh, the sixth book. Sam is clutching the copy of Dune that he owns in his hands right now. I think he's really excited to read the back of the book. Um, the way that this month is going to work, do not worry, we are not trying to do all of Dune in one day. My god, you guys would be listening to what, like a four to six hour Dune podcast? Well, it'd be really hard for us too to try to talk about everything that happens in Dune because it is a very dense book. There's a lot going on. Uh, not a whole lot of just casual conversations. So for us to read all 800 pages and talk about it in one podcast would be overloading for us and you so the way that this month is going to work is if you guys have ever heard people talk about the book dune i think one of the first things that i heard people say was like the first chapter is 300 pages long like okay guys there are chapters within the parts he just doesn't number them but there are like clear page breaks there are little like historical blurbs at the beginning of every chapter like there are chapters but yeah so we're reading part one this week part two next week and then part three and then the last week since we can't really do any comp con we are simply going to talk about the dune movie that both of us have seen we'll have to rewatch it i have to i have to speak about timothy chalamet for a moment is he a good actor yeah I think he's a really good actor. I cannot help but see Timothy Chalamet in every single role that he plays. I th- I think he shouldn't have been cast in the new Willy Wonka movie because I think about the the part <laughs> in the trailer where he's like, flip that, reverse it. <laughs> and I don't like that they made him do that. I miss my stoic Paul Atreides. He doesn't need to be Willy Wonka. He really does look like a sickly boy king. Yeah, well, and the way that they describe Paul in this book is, like, thin for his age, about 15, and, like, looks kind of hawkish, like you, a hawk. Do you think that Paul Atreides, like Timothy Chalamet, would have given um, chlamydia to half of the 
women at NYU? No, I don't think so. I don't really think so either. But I thought it was a good thought exercise. Okay, so I know that people have gotten really used to the way that we do the pod where we read the back of the book and we do a two-minute summary and then we talk about the book. This is a very complicated piece of sci-fi. And frankly, maybe we... So sorry to the insults I'm about to hand to Dune. Maybe we should have done this for when we read Akatar as well. But... Oh Oh, my God. But we wrote out a plot point per chapter, and then we've, like, filled in the things we want to talk about within that plot point, because I have to tell you, I would have been interrupting Sam every, like, third sentence trying to, like, speak on something that was happening in Dune, and I feel like by the time we finished the two-minute, 20-minute summary, like, we would have forgotten all the things we wanted to talk about at the beginning, so... It will be a little bit different. We also won't be able to do Goodreads until the last episode because spoilers. So, Sam, you didn't even mention Shai Halud. Shai Halud, <clears throat> like the words Shai Halud, I think show up one time in part one. Shai Halud is the big worm. Sam fucking loves the big worm. I think the big worm's pretty cool. Um, there's something kind of hypnotizing about how big it is. Mm-hmm. Pause. Uh... <laughs> <coughs> Tell me more about how mesmerizing you think the big worm is, Sam. Uh... <laughs> I think it's uh, interesting to have a a plot device that's like always present, mm. extremely dangerous, like basically drives the whole uh culture of the planet and it's just a a big worm. Okay. I literally put in the outline don't be weird about Shai Hulud and the first thing you said was I'd like how big the big worm is. And then we had to pause. You, we don't know that much about it in part one. <laughs> I can't describe the other things about it because you don't know. That's true. Okay. You want to read the back of the book? <clears throat> yeah. Set on the desert planet Arrakis, Dune is the story of the boy Paul Atreides, who would become known as Maud Dib, and of a great family's ambition to bring to fruition humankind's most ancient and unattainable dream. A stunning blend of adventure and mysticism environmentalism and politics, Dune won the first Nebula Award, shared the Hugo Award, and formed the basis of what is undoubtedly the grandest epic in science fiction. So I guess the first thing that I want to look at is like the fact that it is award-winning because lots of the books that we have read on this podcast are quote-unquote like award-winning and they're shit. Dune is not shit. Dune is really good. However, I do think that, like, do you think that it is, like, the first of its kind in, like, a certain wave of science fiction? Do you know enough about science fiction to be able to speak on that? I don't. I know it has uh, led a lot of tropes, like Star Wars draws from Dune pretty heavily. Um, 
sorry for the pauses. Barney has just crawled up onto my lap. Uh, yeah, I mean, Dune is a very influential piece of sci-fi. I haven't read enough old sci-fi to speak exactly to what those influences are, um, other than, you know, kind of the idea of a, of a chosen one in sci-fi, mm-hmm. the way that, yeah. that Star Wars does, um, comes, comes pretty directly from Dune. Also, there's a big worm in Star Wars. That's true. On, um... It's on an asteroid. No, no, no. It's wherever Jabba the Hutt lives, right? Is he the big worm? No, no, no. Oh, no the, the big Sarlacc. worm is the Sarlacc pit. There's two big worms. There's in two Star big Wars. worms in Star Wars? Yeah, because uh, they're flying the Millennium Falcon like through an asteroid and they land on a, on a big worm. Oh, there. that's true. But you're right. The Sarlacc is literally a dune worm. They're the same thing. So, what is. When he says great family's ambition to bring to fruition humankind's most ancient and unattainable dream, which family? Is he talking about the Atreides family? I don't know exactly what the most ancient and unattainable dream here is because Paul's goals and like the Bene Gesserit's goal, which mm-hmm. they say very directly, like we're trying to bring about the Kwisatz Haderach the male Bene Gesserit. That is not, I think, the ambition that's being described here. But I wouldn't say that Paul's ambition, as we get further into the book, matches up with the Atreides' ambition. Because the Atreides' ambition uh, for Duke Leto is is basically just, we want to gain wealth and power and influence through um, Arrakis, and specifically the Spice and the Fremen. I also think that, like, there's a big difference between Paul's ambition to know more about the Fremen and Duke Leto's ambition to know more about the Fremen, and that I think we will talk more about in part two and part three, but, like, I think that, like, that, which we can talk about this in The Perfect Man again a little bit, because we were talking about Leto there, but, like... I think that Leto sees the Fremen as a means to an end. And, like, I guess that you could say that Paul sees the Fremen as a means to an end, but, like, not in a dehumanizing way. Yeah, like, it's it's pretty explicit from the beginning that Leto is trying to very quickly train up legions of Fremen um, to protect himself from the Harkonnens and from the Imperial forces. And, you know, towards the end of part one, Paul is, it's hard to say that what Paul is attaining is ambition because right at the end of part one, and we'll talk about this scene pretty extensively, but at the end of part one, he's basically seeing a finite, a very large, but a finite number of futures and possibilities open to him. So as he kind of moves through those possibilities, um, and this is a big theme through all of the Dune books, um, but it's kind of the idea that having prescience, like knowing the future is a complete, uh, you give up pretty much all your freedom because you are railroaded directly into that future. So it's yeah. it's tough to say it's an ambition of his, um, but you know, he sees the roads available and one of them is 
you know, befriend the Fremen um, and help them rise to power. Okay. Okay. I feel like we need to start summarizing before we get any deeper into the end of part one, which I know I set up, but. Yeah, we can start doing that. Uh, so the very first thing that happens in the book is the test of the Gam Jabbar. And the Gam Jabbar is Emily. Um, It's this. So I feel like we have to talk about Paul's mom. Her name is Jessica. She's a member of the Bene Gesserit, which that lots of people call them witches. They're a religious order and their purpose has to do with bloodlines, which I have some questions about, specifically like whether or not Frank Herbert is like flirting with eugenics here. But also, Jessica has Paul. Jessica was never supposed to have Paul. She was told by the religious order to marry Duke Leto. And she was also told only to bear him daughters. Yeah. But... Well, she wasn't wasn't told to marry him. She was told to be his concubine. She was just told to bear a daughter. And she didn't bear a daughter. She bore a son because she fell in love with Duke Leto and wanted to give him a son. And Leto really wanted a son. And so um, the, like... Essentially, like, the Mother Superior character, if you've ever seen The Sound of Music. (laughs) She's, like, the head of the religious order. I don't remember her name, so I'm calling her Mother Superior. It's, like, it's, it's, like, Gaius Helen. Okay. Something like that. Mother Superior. Yes. Um, comes to the planet and says, your son must face the test of the Gamjabar. And basically... Jessica is told to leave the room, and Paul has a poisonous needle put up to his neck, essentially. That's the Gamjabar, the needle. The needle is the Gamjabar. And then he has to put his hand in the tube, and the tube causes you pain. Right. But if you take your hand out of the tube, if you flinch, you get stabbed in the neck by the poisonous needle. And you have to just, like, withstand the pain, basically, until Mother Superior is like, oh, you're made of stern stuff. And then you're good. Pretty much, yeah. And we're going to talk about, too, like, more about what the Bene Gesserit are and what their motivations are. But that is essentially what she's testing for is, like, do you have the willpower to, you know, not scream, not pull your hand out of the box? Uh, so Paul passes the test of the Gamjabar. Uh, the Reverend Mother is like, wow, no one's ever done as much pain as that and like survived. So we're already setting up that Paul is very special. Um, in the second chapter right away, uh, Baron Harkonnen is going to describe Basically, everything that's going to happen for the next 200 pages. You didn't tell me whether or not the Bene Gesserit are, like, eugenicists. Oh. <clears throat> um, uh, I mean, they're not really, like, preventing other people from breeding. But they do have, like, a breeding program that's planned out with these royal bloodlines, mainly, of the Great Houses. Um, and they have records that go back very far and their goal is to produce the Kwisatz Haderach, the shortening of the way, uh, 
which we're going to learn more about in parts two and three, about what that really means. Um, but essentially it is a male Bene Gesserit, uh, trained like a, a Bene Gesserit um, with similar sorts of uh, physical and mental powers. Okay, we can move on to chapter two. I just, I think that it is a little messy of Frank Herbert to have uh, a major religious order whose entire job is to like, have certain bloodlines marry. I wouldn't say they're a religious order. Oh, they're, they're, like, they're a political They're more order? like a political organization. Okay, so the Baron outlines the plan, and he's talking to his master assassin, assassin, Peter, and he's talking to his nephew, who is played by Austin Butler in part two of the movie, whose name I have not bothered to remember, because I am just calling him Austin Butler. His name is Fade Rotha? Fade Rotha, Austin Butler. Um, and I think that this is where we need to talk about how the writing of Dune is so good. Because Baron Harkonnen tells you every single thing that's going to happen in part one. Like, if I have to put it into three sentences, it is, I have convinced the Emperor to let Duke Atreides take over Arrakis in the next two months we will be taking Arrakis back by the traitor in Duke Atreides' midst letting us into, essentially, the castle. We will take over, and we will take Arrakis back with the backing of the Emperor, and the Atreides family will be gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's basically a move by the Harkonnens to remove their rival house, the Atreides, and... The Emperor also gets to get rid of the Atreides, who is considered a pretty powerful great house, and more importantly, um, has influence over the other great houses. So the threat to the Emperor is that the Atreides would gather an alliance of other great houses mm. and be able to uh, make a threat to the Empire. But I want to talk about the writing here. It is so cool. That Frank Herbert tells you exactly what's going to happen for the next, like, 300 pages. And then you spend the next 300 pages with it playing out like that. And you care so much. Like, you care that something bad is going to happen to Duke Leto. And you want it to stop. And you want it to not happen. Um, Like, that is really really good writing like it's not boring you're not waiting for part one to be over you are just like reading part one i think with like a growing sense of dread yeah and i think there's some part reading uh the book for the first time where you are holding out hope that it's not going to go down the way that they're explaining it but you know through every chapter you're seeing that same thread of of things that were told to you happening and you're it becomes harder and harder to imagine how they're going to work their way out of it. Um, I think another piece of why the writing is so engaging in part one, even though you do have a pretty good idea of, of the big plot points that are going to happen is uh, I think that the, the world building is very interesting. You know, mm. they tell you just enough about Arrakis um, that you want to keep learning more about it. It's just such a, a different hostile place. 
I think it should be noted that both Sam and I read Dune after seeing part one of Dune. So I would push back on that a little bit. And maybe this is because I'm a skimmer. But I think that part of the reason I found it so engaging is because I had something to visualize. Yeah, that's fair. Like I had something to see, especially with the spice. Like... Either I saw the word spice and was like, oh, they're explaining this, but I already know what it is, and I skipped it, or he did not talk enough about, like, spice specifically as a psychedelic for me to understand, like, why it is so important to the entire universe. Yeah, when I first watched the movie... I was very drawn in by the book because I was left confused by a lot of things in the movie. Mm. Like, what is a mentat? Who is Thufir Hawat? What does he do? And like, yeah, what what's up with the uh, uh, the spice? Um, in the movie, the Baron Harkonnen is just like floating around everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the movie, I just thought he could fly. <laughs> and then in the books, you know, it's revealed that he has suspensers that that lift him um and maybe that was in the movie i think it's subtle if it's in there Mm -hmm. but like i definitely thought wow people can fly in dune and no they can't just fly but yeah i i'm i've the first time i read the book i was really pulled in by like all of the intricacies of of the universe that was there whether that was like the the politicking of the great houses back and forth um or like the customs on arrakis uh you know they talk they do talk a little bit more about the spice and why it's important like without spice there is no space travel because it makes spice is like and this is part of like what mentats do spice is like a it it prolongs life and it also uh, increases mental function a lot. Oh. So like the the spacing guild members who mm-hmm. map the course for the ships, they have like a limited prescience where they can like see the future. And that is how they plot the course. And if you couldn't do that, there is no space travel between systems. Oh. But they don't tell you that in Dune part one. In the movie? Or, oh, part one of the book? Yeah. Um, I think they do. Oh, okay. I'm getting my first Emily You Were Skimming reminder of the podcast. Um, okay, do you want to move on to our, our third plot point? We're 23 minutes in. We're two plot points in. Yeah, we can do that. Uh, so this is just Paul telling the Reverend Mother who administered the Gamjabar test to him uh, that he's been having dreams. And she's like, She's like, when you have dreams, do these things happen? He's like, yeah, most of the time. And so that's kind of our first clue that Paul is tapped into uh, some prescient powers. He's able to see the future a little bit. And she's like, you know, he's not the only guy who's ever done this. Like, he might be Kwisatz Haderach. Like, Jessica, you were too bold. You shouldn't have had a son. You thought you could produce the Kwisatz Haderach, but you should have listened to us. Um, which really the implication through most of the book is if Jessica had had a daughter, that Jessica's grandson 
could have been the Kwisatz Haderach. Mm. Like, they were really close. So, if she had had a daughter, would the Harkonnens still have pushed for the Atreides to take over Dune? Like, what happens? Maybe. Oh, this is getting kind of back to the future. This is getting very, like, splitting all the timelines up and how many futures could there be and... Okay. It's a little bit hard to say for certain how much the Bene Gesserit had influence over the the plot of this book of the Atreides going to Arrakis, mm. um, you know, causing certain war with the Harkonnens. So that's that's kind of left opaque. But, you know, suffice to say, Jessica had a son. He might be the Kwisatz Haderach. The Reverend Mother is like, better be careful with them. Okay, the next thing that happens is we meet a bunch of Paul's teachers. So we meet Thufir Hawat, who is a Mentat, and he is Duke Atreides' head assassin, essentially. And then Thufir Hawat is like, Paul, never leave your back to the door. And then he kind of leaves. They talk about the future a little bit, and then he leaves. And then Gurney Haddock? Halleck. Halleck? Sorry, everyone. Um, and comes in and he's like, we're going to train. And Paul is like, why are you training me? Where's Duncan Idaho? So those are the three big men who are on Duke Leto's council. You have his head assassin, you have Halleck who does something, and then you have Duncan Idaho duncan idaho who's like a major part of his military yeah and gurney halleck is also like a high-ranking lieutenant in the military but except gurney halleck plays i think what is meant to be a guitar oh yeah he's like um he's like a warrior bard he is he's always quoting uh from the bible but not not like uh our universe's bible Mm. from the orange catholic bible Hell yeah. Which they explain in later books. There was basically a huge council of like every religious leader from every religion. Mm-hmm. And they just came together and made the religion. And that's what everyone believes now. Oh, sick. Okay. Now, Paul receives that Bible from Dr. Yue, who is like the fourth big man we meet, essentially. Yeah, he's, he's kind of a trusted advisor, but for the most part, he's just the family doctor. And he was, like, trained in a special order, and basically the through line with Dr. Yue is, well, he was trained by this order, he could not betray us. Like, they believe it is a legitimate physical impossibility to, like, break through the conditioning of this order to betray the family you are supposed to serve. And that is the big secret. Yeah. The Harkonnens found a way to break the conditioning uh, by... Torturing his wife, who is also a Bene Gesserit. Um, do you want to explain the orders to me a little bit? Yes. So the Bene Gesserit are a political organization, like we've said, that focus on controlling bloodlines. Um, they are kind of moving in the shadows to create superstitions uh, on different planets Um to influence like the great houses and the emperor and to eventually produce the Kwisatz Haderach, which is going to be a male Bene Gesserit. And I'm 
pretty sure I'm not 100% on this, but I think the idea for them is that if this male Bene Gesserit is under their control, they will be the most powerful group in the universe. Oh, okay. Because he will be such a powerful member of their order. And what they kind of do is they have really, really good control over like their nervous system. So they can like slow their heart rate and, uh, and they're like very good fighters uh, for that reason. Um, and they're also able to read other people very well. It's like facial expressions. Um, some of them have, uh, some of them are truth sayers, which means that they can detect when uh, truth and lies are being told. They often need a little bit of spice to do that or to amplify that feeling up enough that they're able to do it. Um, and they also have a power called uh, the voice where they're able to, um, with their voice, compel other people to do things. And that's kind of like their big secret. That's not something that the Bene Gesserit like other people knowing. Um, so when Jessica uses it later on someone who's not expecting it, uh, you know, that's really a big surprise. So Paul has been getting trained by his mother, uh, in the Bene Gesserit ways since he was young. Uh, he's learning how to use the voice. He's not very good at it yet. Um, and he's got pretty good control over like his nervous system. Uh, and he's pretty good at like intuiting other people's uh, emotions and like whether they're lying or not. Uh, the other kind of group that's not really a political group, um, it's the Mentats. So like Thufir Hawat is the Mentat for uh, the Atreides. Uh, Peter is the Mentat for the Harkonnens. And what they do is they're kind of like human computers. They take in a lot of inputs and they are like very, very logical in the way that they think about things um, and are able to give predictions off that to a pretty, pretty high accuracy. And the reason that they exist at all is a long time ago in the Dune universe, there was like a robot uprising and the humans fought back and basically said like, you will never make a machine that mimics a human mind again. So... Since they can't do that, that's why the Mentats exist. They're the ones that are like applying logic to these situations. Uh, it's why the guild uh, spaceships are piloted by people who have to get really high and then see the future. Because like, <laughs> you can't count on a machine to do any of it. So I want to put out there that none of that is in part one of Dune. But Frank Herbert does make it really clear to you that Thufir Hawat is important. He makes it clear that, like, he is extremely trusted to notice things. He is sent ahead to Arrakis to make sure that he goes through the whole house. It's why later in the book, when Paul is almost assassinated by a hunter-seeker, everyone is just, like, at a loss. Because it is so incomprehensible to them that Thufir Hawat could miss something, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, I also, my other question to you about the two, the Dune universe and all of the, like, orders are there, is, like, what is the lifespan of an average person? I think the average person, like, not in the service of these great houses, 
probably pretty similar. So are the people who are in the great houses, like Duke Leto, no assassination attempts, lives a what lifespan? Uh, depends if he's on Arrakis or not, because spice extends life. It like slows aging. So the Mentats to really do the sort of like mental computation that they have to, they have to have spice. That's why Peter is always described as having, you know, the blue within blue eyes of someone who's been consuming a lot of spice. Um, Thufir, I think in the movie also has pretty blue eyes. Um, so that is why Thufir Hawat has been serving um, so many generations of the Atreides is because he's been taking in this spice. Uh, it is addictive. If you stop taking it, eventually it's very bad for you and you die. <clears throat> but yeah, so yeah, I don't know like how much spice Duke Leto was getting when he was still on Caladan before he came to Arrakis. But if anyone has been living a very long time, it's probably because they've been taking spice. Okay. Like the Reverend, the Reverend Mother um, also has a lot of spice. Gotcha. So she's been around a long time. So the whole universe is on psychedelics. Just the people who can pay for it. Gotcha. Okay. The reason we talked about all of that is because Duke Leto tells Paul that he has been secretly being trained as a Mentat. But we as the reader, like, that's what Leto believes. But, like, Paul has also been being trained in the Bene Gesserit way. Yeah. So, like... We as the reader understand that, like, Paul's really got something special going on because he's being trained in the way of, like, both major orders that, like, teach you to see more. Yeah, like, mentally, he is, like, a supercomputer at the age of 15. If he lived in 2023, Paul would be on incredible amounts of Lexapro. Yeah, I mean, he's not having a great time in Dune either. No. And, like, the spice doesn't really help because it just elevates all of the things he's thinking all the time. Like, what's the meme where it's, like, you, like, took a perfectly good thing and you, like, gave it anxiety? I can picture it. I can even picture the tone of voice. I'll text Bailey about it. She'll be able to, you know, the, like, look at it. It's got anxiety. I don't think I know this one. God damn it. Okay. So that is all taking place on Caladon. Caladan. Caladan. That's how they say it in the movie, at least. Um, Which is kind of like an ocean planet. Yeah, it's like jungles, a lot of water. Um... But we're going to the planet where you need desert power. Yeah, which they say, they say it a few times in the book that like, they need to cultivate desert power. And it's just kind of like a, oh, like, yeah, they keep saying that. But in the movie, the amount of times they say desert power and, like, where they say it is horrible. It's my really? least favorite part of the movie. I think it's so annoying. You think it's cheesy? I think it's really cheesy. But I think that, like, Dune is cheesy. Like, good sci-fi, mm-hmm. like, is about revolution and, like, change and, like doing things different like i think that like leaning into how cheesy sci-fi is which like all all good books set in a different universe are a little bit cheesy because like no one is writing a book in a different universe that's like 
that's like Hamnet or that's like like no one is just like writing a book about a singular family during the plague like set in the Dune universe. There is no beach read. There's no Dune. beach read in Dune. Yeah. Like who gives a fuck? Like like Dune I don't there's a reason I don't want to read Ice Planet Barbarians. I think there's probably a few reasons you don't want to read it. <laughs> And it's not because of how dissimilar to Dune it is. But, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, now we're leaving Caladan and we're going to Arrakis. Arrakis is the desert planet. It's where the Harkonnens had a monopoly on spice for the last lot I, of years. I think they say like 80 or 90 years. Um, And the Harkonnens, we need to understand that they are like, bad bosses it is essentially like it is essentially like arrakis is their plantation and they are the slave owners that's pretty accurate for the way that they're portrayed and in the way that the uh the natives of arrakis are are being treated you know they're pretty oppressive uh they the harkonnens like never even really cared enough to uh get a good count of how many fremen are on the planet uh thufir hawat gets to the planet and is like yeah, no, like, they miscounted. Like, there's thousands times more than the Harkonnens thought. They're everywhere. Which, the reason that the Harkonnens, like, didn't know that is because they're living in the desert. And the Harkonnens never really saw Arrakis as anything besides something to, like... Like, they saw Arrakis kind of as, like, a horse to break. And once they broke it enough to their purposes, they didn't ask any more questions... But, like, the Fremen are living in all the nooks and crannies of the desert of Arrakis. Yeah, they're everywhere. And, like, something besides spice is sustaining the worms. Something else that they describe that's, like, very clear in the book is they're like, oh, yeah, you can, like, tap a place for water and it will, like, come out for a teeth, like, for a second, for a day, for an hour, and then you will never be able to tap that place for water ever again. Yeah. So in, in parts two and three of the book, we definitely learn a lot more about the ecology of of Arrakis and the worms. And we kind of find out, you know, why is it that uh, water is like so hard to get by normal means? Um, but they go to Arrakis and Jessica meets her like housekeeper, essentially. Mm-hmm. And her name is the Shadow... Sh- shout, shout out. Shout out Mapes, I think. I don't think she's in the movie, so I'm... She is in the movie. I don't know if her name's in the movie. Oh, okay. And Jessica does something very respectable. I literally don't even remember anymore. And she's given the tooth of a shy halud. Made into a knife. Made into a knife. And the reason she gets it is she's basically guessing at what sort of religion has been set up on Arrakis Mm. by the Bene Gesserit in the past. So she's like hearing some of these phrases... And she's like, okay, that kind of lines up with what I was taught. So I'm going to keep going. And she's like kind of taking chances. She's like, I know if I say the wrong thing, there's like a high, you know, possibility for violence here. Um, but she says the right things. And shout out Mapes is like, you are the Lisan Al-Gaib. You're the voice from the outer planet. Both her and Paul kind of share that title. And... You know, the the prophecy there is, like, a messianic. Am I saying that right? 
Yeah. M- messianic. Yeah. Messianic figure. Um, that's going to lead the Fremen to out of out of this oppression that they've been in. So she gets the knife. Jessica's having a weird day. She has a weird fucking day. She that is. first day on Dune. She meets the shout out Mapes. She goes and she talks to Dr. Yue. And Dr. Yue is like seconds from being like, please, they have my wife. They have my wife. But Jessica doesn't push because she's like, he is a member of this order. And then she goes upstairs and she finds the conservatory where there's like a, it's like a greenhouse. Essentially. It's a really big greenhouse. Yeah. You know, they say that the amount of water being spent in it is like probably a hundred people on Arrakis worth a day. You know? Yeah. It's a, it's like this obscene show of wealth. Um, and while she is finding the conservatory and finding a note from the Bene Gesserit woman who lived there before them, um, Paul wakes up from a nap and gets up in his room and suddenly there is a hunter seeker in the room which is basically like a little dart that goes to find whoever is moving in a room so paul stands this is actually a really cool scene in the movie yeah he's like moving through the hologram in his room of like uh i don't know they're like reeds or something yeah so the light's kind of playing up and he's hiding within them it is a really cool scene um but then someone opens his door and it turns towards the door and he reaches out and catches it. It's the shout out mate. Yep. And he crushes it and then everyone is like, ah! Yeah, and Thufir is like, oh my god, I resign. Like, this is so shameful. Yeah. And Leto's like, no. You're not allowed you to You actually do that. are not allowed to resign. <laughs> Which, this is when they really make you care a lot about Leto. Because we are shown very clearly the entire time that, like, Duke Leto is... You know, I really don't know what the word righteous means, but I'm pretty sure we are supposed to understand that Duke Leto is, like... He's a good leader. He is a good leader. He understands when to act a certain way. He understands to be when to be proud. He understands when to be forgiving. All of these things. But, like, there's this whole chapter where he's, like, having to do a lot of politicking... And then every, like, fifth paragraph ends with just, like, in italics, they tried to take the life of my son. I'm tearing up. Yeah, he's talking about, he's talking to people, he's (laughs) like, he's like, these spice miners that work for the Harkonnens, like, you know, they're allowed to leave the planet, but, like, Gurney, why don't you try to go convince them to leave? And, like, the whole time, he's just, like, shaking with rage that someone tried to, tried to kill Paul. Yeah, he is... He is experiencing, I think, the fear of a parent that, like, only a parent can have. And it's, like, really, really, like, I think authors have to be careful using repetition. But I think specifically in, like, grief and anger, it's a really, really good tool for them to use. Like, he experienced something really scary. And, like, well, what he is... Shaking with, you named it as rage, like, I would name it as fear. Like, it is coming out as rage, but, like, the reason he is so angry is because he is, like, sick with the idea of losing his son. Yeah, for sure. And, like, I think that it is important to see, like, big leaders like that be a good dad, because everything that we know 
in like real life and are like taught about monarchies dads do not give a fuck about their children no they're too busy like as soon as a boy is born they're like sick I don't even have to waste time on my wife anymore. Like, (laughs) (laughs) am I wrong? No, I mean, that's how it's treated a lot of the times. But, you know, Leto from minute one is is shown to care a lot about Paul and care a lot about Jessica, although he's kind of whack to her in in a few spots. He, we will be discussing this. We can, yeah. Jessica, his concubine. Yeah, I think we gotta we gotta go through a few more of these plot points kind of <laughs> kind of quickly because we got some really big ones coming up. And we're forty five minutes in. Yeah. So after this, Lido is having like his war council. Paul's sitting in, and uh, Duncan Idaho comes back. He's been sent ahead to meet with the Fremen and and kind of make friends with them. And uh, the leader of the community that Duncan Idaho was in, Stilgar. Stilgar comes to the council, and is like, "What's up, Lido? Like." I don't think you can, like, give us that much. So just kind of, like, let us do our thing and we'll let you do your thing. And um, and then Stilgar leaves. Uh, Leto figures out that the Harkonnens are trying to make him uh, distrustful of someone in his inner circle. There have been, like, notes that have been left that say, like... Or no, they capture a Harkonnen guy. He tries to, like, destroy the note that he has, but he's only able to destroy some of it. And the note essentially says, like, yeah, someone close to the Duke is going to betray him. And so Leto is Leto's talking with Thufir, and they're like, all right, what the Harkonnens want to do is, like, make me suspicious of Jessica. So Leto's always like, if you can see the trap, you should just be in it. Because then you got to step up because you're in the trap, but you know you're in the trap. So he's he's telling Thufir, like, go watch Jessica. Um we got to keep an eye on her. Not because I like actually suspect her, but because I need other people to think that I suspect her. Yeah. And he is upset about it. Like something that he says to Paul later in the book is like, just so you know, like I'm going to act this way to your mom. But if something happens to me, you need to tell her that I never once for a second doubted her because I didn't. Yeah. Um, so after that, uh, Lido and Paul and Gurney... Uh, I'll go out to observe the spice miners with uh, Dr. Kynes, who is sent by the emperor. Well, not sent by the emperor. He's already on Arrakis, working as like studying the planet for the emperor, but is sent to kind of arbitrate over the handover of power between the Harkonnens and the Atreides. But he's, the emperor has, has basically told him to, to say fuck the Atreides and, you know, keep keep working on the betrayal. Uh, so they're out there and they are observing like this crawler on the sand that's harvesting spice. And a worm always comes because they're attracted by vibration and these mining machines make a lot of it. So there's normally like this big ship that comes in and, and picks the hauler up and takes it to safety. But... A Harkonnen agent has, we find out later, has sabotaged the the carry-all, which is supposed to carry away the, the spice miners. Um, so it's not going to show up. So Leto decides to go down and uh, rescue the people on the harvester, which is worth a ton of money. They've got a full load of spice, which is like the most valuable thing in the universe. And uh, 
he's very much like, I don't care about the money. Like these people are working for me. Like we need to go save them. Yeah. Um, which is shown to be in very big contrast to the way that the Harkonnens are running things. Kynes is literally, Kynes gets on the like, the, it's so funny of them not to call them helicopters. They just call them thopters. They're ornithopters. Ornithopters. Because they're like birds. They flap wings. Sam just made a little wing flapping motion at me with his fingers. Keynes gets on, Kynes. Kynes. Kynes gets on the thopter and is like very prepared to hate Duke Leto. Like he really is like bearing prejudice towards him. Oh, yeah. And then, like, Paul asks, like, smart questions and, like, really is, like, Kynes is kind of like, oh, this man is smart. And then, like, he can tell that Leto is, like, being very careful and respectful. And then he saves the miners and Kynes kind of, like, flies them back. And to be clear, when he saves the miners, like, they put, like, four more people on the ornithopter than they're supposed to. Like, they're really, like, shoving bodies onto planes. And Kynes is like, are you going to be able to get the ship high enough? And he's like, it's fine. Yeah. We have to. He's like, we'll do it. We'll do it. Like, we have to. Just, like, very, very pragmatic about it. And Kynes kind of very begrudgingly, by the time they're back at the stronghold, is like, dang it! Like, I don't want to like this guy. Like, this makes my job harder. And then, what? Do we get to dinner? We get to dinner. Wait, I have questions. Okay. So, if the Harkonnens were supposed to just, like... Maybe this is a dumb question, because the Emperor is backing the move by the Harkonnens. But, like, if the Judge of Truth or whatever is supposed to make it so the miners can leave if they choose to with the change of power... Why did the Harkonnens get to take all their equipment? Like, weren't they supposed to, weren't they told to just, like, drop everything and clear the planet? They didn't take their equipment. They just... Not most of it. They left it there. But it's shit. It is shit. So how were they getting, like, a crazy amount of money off the planet with shit equipment? Because it's worth a ton. Because it only comes from one place. So the Harkonnens get to set the price. And they're just, like, not really doing upkeep on the machines. And also, when they knew that the Atreides were going to come, it's said that, like, they sabotage a fair Mm. bit of it. Because they also know that they're going to be able to get away with it because the judge of the change, Kynes, is in the Emperor's pocket. And being told to look the other way. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Dinner time. Yes. There so many things happen in the dinner. We meet a lot of characters that we will never meet again. Uh, Why don't we stick with the characters that we do meet again? Okay, yeah. So, Kynes is there. And throughout this uh, last chapter where they were going out to see the Spice Miners and then through dinner, uh, Paul keeps, like, fulfilling, you know, fragments of the prophecy that uh, the Fremen have. And Kynes is shown to be, if not originally Fremen, uh, essentially Fremen at this point, you know, and uh, so he's at dinner. He's just had this whole experience where he's like, wow, I actually do kind of like these guys. And then Jessica says, um, kind of as a retort to someone who says to Jessica, like, oh, uh, like, you're going to get rid of our customs where we essentially waste water and then like tout it on 
uh, the like destitute of Arrakis, like, mm -hmm. oh, we're going to get rid of that custom, but you're going to keep your conservatory, which uses so much water. And she's like, oh, well, I'm keeping that so that maybe one day, like, we can use these plants to, to grow more plants on Arrakis. And Kynes has like a euphoric moment where he's like, oh my God, she wants what we want. Like, yeah. she's here. This is for real. And the we that Sam is speaking about is that Kynes is a Fremen sympathizer. Yeah. And like a big way. Like, I'm sure he's allowed to go into their little sand hideouts. I am sure that like, is that only in the movie? No, Kynes is very important to the Fremen. Yeah. Um. So, like, when Kynes is saying we, he means... He means the, the like, Fremen. people who are native to Arrakis, who love the planet, who want to stay there, who want to make it better, who don't just want to essentially, like, rape it of its one, like, natural resource until mm -hmm. there is nothing left. Yeah, exactly. Is spice worm shit? It's what we know about it in part one is that it is connected to the worms. If there were no more worms, there is no more spice. There would be no more spice. Heard. Um, I don't know if we need to go actually that much more into what happens in the dinner. We're really shown that like Paul is like pretty diplomatic. He's really good at reading people. Um and also, uh, some girl tries to seduce him, and he's like, he he doesn't fall for it at he's all. He's like, I'm good. Um, I guess what I'll say about dinner is, Jess, if you want to talk more about the political machinations of this specific dinner, you can text Sam. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Duncan Idaho. We didn't talk about this. Duncan Idaho is also gifted a Chris knife. And invited to be part of the Fremen. That happens earlier in the book. But then he's pulled back out of the... What's the... Where is he? He's in the Siege. The Siege. Thank you. Oh, I think I just burped. He's in the Siege. You called them sand hideouts earlier, which pretty accurate. Good enough. They're mostly caves. Um, but Duncan got pulled back out of his Siege to serve Duke Leto. That was kind of the deal that he made with Silgar. Stilgar. Stilgar. I'm so close on these names, There's a guys. lot of names. I'm like a letter off on these names. The first part of this book is like a class. <laughs> you have so much to learn and it's coming pretty quick. Um, He gets pulled out because he needs to watch Lady Jessica. And Duncan Idaho gets drunk and is like, they just want me to watch the women anywhere. He's, I'm just watching the women. He's like, fuck you, Jessica. You made it so I had to leave the desert, and I was having fun there. No, that's not, that's not really why he's mad. He's like, I know you're the traitor, Jessica. I'm not allowed to do anything about it. And then Jessica gets really pissed, and then she confronts Thufir Hawat, and then she uses the voice on him. Yeah, and he's really scared. Yeah. Like, he really is like, oh my god. Like, this woman has been in our midst the whole time. Yeah, who can just, like, make people do things. But she uses it as proof, essentially, because the thing about the voice is you know it's being used on you. Or at least he certainly did. Yeah, you know it's being used. It's like your body doing something without your mind telling it. And so she uses it as proof of, like, don't you think I would have made Duke Leto marry me? Don't you think I would have made it so we didn't have to go to Arrakis? 
Like, don't you think I would have made us run? Like, I am not the traitor here. I'm supporting my husband. Well, mm, I'm supporting my... What's what's the word for the man who has a concubine? From the concubine's point of view? Yeah. I think just the duke. (laughs) Maybe I don't think there's a word for it. Um, that's because we're not really usually hearing from the concubine. A master? I don't like that. Okay. At this point, things go nuts. Dr. Yue betrays Duke Leto. Duke Leto, like, gets up in the middle of the night. It's almost like he's like, oh, something feels weird. I'm going to get up. He hears, I forget what he describes it as, but, like, uh, Yue has killed... I think, an Atreides guard, and also, shout out Mapes. That made me sad. That was sad. Yeah. Because she was pretty chill. Well, and she was old, and, like, on a planet like Arrakis, like, age is hard to come by. Yeah. Um, So then he tranquilizes the Duke and is like, I'm sorry, but I had to do this. I don't do it out of malice, but, like... They tortured my wife. He's like, I have to know that my wife is dead because he he, he kind of knows that like the only way that she gets out of it is if she dies but he he's like my wife taught me like a little bit of truth saying like i i can detect truth a little bit so like if i get in front of the baron i'll know yeah so he's made a deal with the baron to turn over leto mm-hmm. and take down the shields on the house um in exchange for uh the wording of the bargain is essentially like free my wife from her misery. Yeah. Um, so he implants a tooth filled with poison gas in Leto. He's all like, remember the tooth, remember the tooth. And then uh, like binds Leto and delivers him to the Duke. He also like rips down the shields on the house, essentially. Like he leaves the door wide open. Yeah, he... Um, And I will say, I think that UA's revenge is really interesting for a lot of reasons. One, it sucks so bad. Because he, like, I personally wish that all he did was open the doors. Like, I wish that he had not also, like, knocked out the Duke and killed the Shadow Mapes and, like, all of that stuff. I wish that he had... I wish his bargain had been taking down the shields. And that's all he did. It would feel a lot less gross. However, I think it is really interesting that the revenge of one man, like, almost almost ruins the prophecy. Because, like, if his revenge works, if Duke Leto, spoiler, the poison does not work. No. Like, it kills a bunch of other people in the room, but it does not kill Baron Harkonnen. And if it works, like, who is the big bad? Like, part of the reason that, like, this big villain, the Harkonnens, the Empire versus Arrakis works is we have this, like, central, poisonous, terrible figure. So without him, like... It is very, I just think that it is cool that, like, we see just for a second that, like, like, are they doing the sci-fi one one man can make a difference thing? Oh, yeah. This is definitely, like, great man theory. Yeah. Literature. Like, 
But at the same time, if the Baron had died, it would have stayed under Harkonnen rule. And it probably would have gone to uh, Raban, who was in charge before the Atreides were there. Because mm. Har- Baron Harkonnen wasn't actually living on Arrakis. Mm-hmm. He had it kind of leased out to his relative until Fade Rotha was old enough. Who's yeah. like the direct heir. Austin Butler. Remember, that that one's Austin Butler. Bald Austin Butler. Would it be confusing if I started referring to him as Elvis Presley? Do you think that would really put people over the edge? He's playing such a different character. <laughs> it's, it's tough to imagine two more different characters. Um, While Dr. Yue is betraying the family, the Harkonnens are kidnapping Paul and Jessica. And they don't kill Jessica because Peter, Baron Harkonnens... Mentat um, is like, please, 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 please give me Lady Jessica, please. She's all I want. Please give her to me. And then they kidnap Paul and Jessica and Baron Harkonnen is like, well, what if I give you Rain of the Planet? And he's like, okay, deal. Yeah. He did not have to think about it. The Baron's like, I'll come back and get your answer. And he's like, no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> um... But Dr. Yue, one, steals the signet ring off Duke Leto and hide it, hides it under an ornithopter seat. Mm-hmm. And yep. it is somehow the thopter that Jessica and Paul are shoved onto to be dropped into the middle of the desert to die. Yue has planned a lot of this ahead so that Jessica and Paul live and that he only has to fulfill the part of the bargain where he gives up Leto. It is unclear to me how he manipulated Duncan Idaho into, like, knowing how to save Paul and Lady Jessica. So, in the movie, I think they give them, like, a like a dispatcher beacon. Oh, yeah, like a radio yeah, yeah. signal. Um, I don't know. He might have just passed a note to Duncan. He was, he was writing a lot of notes mm. in part one. Yeah. Um, but anyways... Yeah, so, like, Jessica uses the voice on some Harkonnens. Uh, they're able to to kill them, and then they, they end up in the desert with a bunch of supplies um, and some notes. And so, kind of while that's going on, um, Baron Harkonnen is meeting Leto and is basically just, like, gloating to him. And uh, Leto's like, I'm ready to die. And he, he crunches his tooth, and he blows out the poison gas. And it kills Peter and a few other Harkonnens, but the Baron is able to very quickly, like, step back through a door um, and and not be harmed. And he's pretty upset about it. Uh, like a, a member of the, the Emperor's Legion that he loaned to the, to the Harkonnens to make sure everything's going right um, is coming in to, like, inspect the body. And the Baron is really like, oh, damn, the Emperor is going to see that, like, I'm kind of weak. Like, I could have been killed here very easily. Um, but that's all we see of the Baron in part one, because we've only got one chapter left. In the movie, they do let the the Baron get poisoned a little bit, and then they put him in the weird milk bath. Yeah, it's it looks like, like he's coming out of glue. No, it's like all black. Oh, and he's all white. It looks like... It looks like it kind of looks like balsamic vinaigrette and olive oil. <laughs> they look like they're making a little salad in there. Yummy. Um, okay. 
So Paul and Jessica are kidnapped and then they escape because Paul uses the voice for like half a second, just long enough to get Jessica free. And then Jessica uses the voice. Um, and then they're saved by Duncan Idaho. But then Duncan Idaho like leaves them in a little tent in the desert. He's got to go find Dr. Kynes. Yeah. Um, and Paul gets exposed to like a shit ton of spice. And Lady Jessica is like, no, my husband, I'm sad, I'm crying, I'm having a real, this is terrible moment. And Paul is like, oh my god, I have breathed in so many psychedelics and I fucking hate you. You're trying to make me into the Messiah. Yeah, Paul is like, I can't grieve, why can't I grieve my father? And he's being like driven, like into a really bad place by it up to this point he's been talking about feeling like he has some sort of terrible purpose mm. um but being out with the spice and i think they show they like lean on the spice a little bit more in the movie but in the book it's just it seems mainly like it's a grief thing mm. that yeah. is that is hitting him here but so he like hits like a certain level of awareness where he's able to reach into the past and see a lot of possible like pasts and also is able to reach into many futures and see all of those um and as part of that he finds out that baron harkonnen is jessica's dad he was seduced by a bene Gesserit at one point who came left the planet and and gave birth to jessica um so that makes paul uh the baron's grandson and paul even talks about having seeing like these two main branching paths and one of them he is at the baron harkonnen and essentially says hello grandfather and he says like i don't like what's down that path like that it makes me sick like the things that would have to happen to be there and then on the other side he's like well i could like go be with the fremen but it's going to lead to like a ton of violence um he says it's going to be like a holy war in my name um across the universe and he, the whole time he's yelling at Jessica, he's like, you know, why have you made me into this? Like, this is too much for me to bear. And he also is kind of like, like he heard Mother Superior say, you were only supposed to have daughters. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, one, I think that the movie did a really good job with making the spice more important. Like, if you haven't seen the movie... If you haven't seen Dune, but you have seen Oppenheimer, weird. But here's what I'm going for. <laughs> okay. You know how in Oppenheimer, they were, he was doing all the screensaver stuff? Where, oh, yeah. You mean Christopher Christopher, Christopher Nolan, Nolan was doing, was doing the all the screensaver stuff? Right. Where, like, he would just have, like, three seconds of a screensaver, and then he would have, like, three seconds of, like, a different atomic screensaver. I wasn't into it. But Denis Villeneuve is doing that in Dune with the spice. Yeah, but it's like flashbacks and flash forwards. Yeah, like it's a lot more purposeful. Like in Oppenheimer, I was like, this is not for me. Yeah. But in Dune, you're kind of like, oh, something's happening here. Well, and they feel very frantic. So it, it kind of puts you into that same like heightened emotional state that Paul's in where you feel like you're being assaulted by visions. Yeah. Um, One, I would like to defend Paul screaming at his mother in this moment. 
I think he is experiencing a very normal mental breakdown on a shit ton of psychedelics right after the death of his father. He is having... The worst day ever. He's having, up to this point, maybe the universe's largest mental breakdown (laughs) anyone's ever had. Or certainly the only one of, like, this specific type. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, he's, you know, I think rightfully, a little mad at his mom for, like, being the exact cause for why it's happening. Which I have questions about that as well. So the first one is a yes or no question. Did she give Leto a son because she loved him or because she wanted to bear the Messiah or was it both? I think it's a mixture of both. Okay. I think that it is probably more so that she wanted to give Leto a son. I mean, it's very plain that like she loves him. And he loves her. And he loves her. But at the same time, you know, uh, the Reverend Mother Gaius, Elena, whatever, is like, you thought yourself, you thought you could produce the Kwisatz Haderach. And I think that was part of it for her. There, she's like, it could be me. <laughs> um, that's my other question. Do you think she trains him in the Bene Gesserit way to give him a better chance at living? Or do you think that she trained him in the Bene Gesserit way to give him a better chance of becoming the Messiah? I think mostly to become the Kwisatz Haderach. That is so fucking selfish. That is bad parenting. Jessica is is shown to be fairly selfish. Like, that is one of her big flaws. Is that she, you know, she had a son that was selfish. She's been training him how to use the voice. And in all of these, like, Bene Gesserit nerve-binding ways. Um, I, I think it's said that, like, she has a hand in him being taught as a mentat. And, like, part of his mental breakdown is that he enters like the mentat trance where like he is just taking in and taking in and taking in information and it's like forcing him to these uh conclusions that he can't escape yeah he's stuck yeah okay talk to me about baron harkonnen so one of your earlier questions baron harkonnen does not know jessica is his daughter okay well they don't look the same at all Paul, at the end, is like, you know, if you look, like, you can kind of see it. Okay, I'm thinking about Baron Harkonnen in the movie, where he's this large, bulbous, white egg. Yeah. So, like, why doesn't Lady Jessica... How is DNA working in the Dune universe? I think Baron Harkonnen looks a lot more normal in the book. Oh, okay. So they're just doing a sci-fi movie thing. Yeah, they have to be, like, all the Harkonnens are really, really pale and bald. Well, it's not just pale. Because you can, like, make someone, like, Lord of the Rings pale. Right. But, like, you can't, you can't, like, paint them white. Yeah, like, he looks like primer cloth. paint white. Yeah. He um, looks like rubber. He does. He looks fake. The, the first time I saw the movie, the Reverend Mother is talking about, like, you did well, young human. And then they like showed the Harkonnens and I'm, I was like, oh, those are aliens. <laughs> like I didn't realize that everyone was humans because she was like, I was like, why would she call me human if uh, if there weren't non-humans that we'd be meeting? But he set up to be like really, really evil. Like we're supposed to see like Leto as a good duke. Yeah. It's and supposed- Baron as, as a bad, selfish man. Yeah, we're led to believe 
and it seems like it from part one that it is like a total moral binary yeah between like the good atreides and the irredeemable evil of the harkonnens and then right at the end of part one it's like oh actually like paul and jessica are harkonnens paul paul is as much harkonnen as he is atreides you know so yeah I, i do think it's interesting I don't know if it has like a ton of literary bearing, but I do think it's interesting to kind of flip the script on the reader and be like, okay, nuance. (laughs) Here's some. Well, I think also like maybe there's a little bit of nature versus nurture there going on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which is like a never ending debate. Um, Yeah, I think also, no, I think that's it. That's sci-fi, though, right? Is like, creating this big, big bad and this good, good, good. I mean, Luke is Darth Vader's child. Like, yeah, Paul is Baron Harkonnen's grandson. Sci-fi loves to take the protagonist and be like, throw a wrench in, like, their moral righteousness. Yeah, which, like, maybe we should... I don't think I have it in me to talk about the hero's journey, but, like, that's part of it. That's going to be part of his crisis of faith that every hero has to go through. Absolutely. It's like when Harry finds out that there is, like, a piece of Voldemort's soul stuck to him. Who is that? Let it, let the audience note that Sam is looking at me with the biggest grin on his face as if he has not read the harry potters or seen the harry potters i haven't seen all of them but you've read them all it's been a while but you forgot who harry was there's a lot of harry's jesus christ okay let's talk about duke leto uh this week duke leto is our perfect man he's our nominee for the perfect man i think potentially gurney halleck could also be perfect man i think Idaho, aside from the him getting drunk and being like, fuck Lady Jessica. He doesn't like, do a whole lot else in part one. No, but he does look like Jason Momoa in my head, and that to me is maybe a reason we should be talking about him. Over Oscar Isaacs? Is it Isaac or Isaacs? It's Isaac. Just one? Yeah. Just the one, it's just Oscar the one Isaac. guy? Oscar's yeah. Isaacs. Samuel. <laughs> Who, who's higher for you? Jason Momoa or Oscar Isaac? Jason Momoa is in Aquaman, which is maybe my least favorite movie I've ever seen in a theater. So you're I gotta take me, points off of it. You're telling that. me that you like won't commit to watching the Marvel movies, but you saw Aquaman in theaters? Yeah. I would like the podcast also to note that Sam is is, is admitting to be a man with very little taste. It wasn't my choice. Hmm. Okay. The first thing I put in The Perfect Man is, do I just think he's the perfect man because Oscar Isaac is hot? We've covered this, and it's, yes. That is not true. He is also a good man. He is a good man. He does do one, he does two very whack things. Which are? He doesn't marry Jessica. The whole time he's like, I should have married her. I should have married her. I should have married her. And it's like, but you didn't. This can't be the first time that you thought like, damn, I should have married her. You yeah. could have done it. Like, you've been together for 15 years. Like You have a son. 
And also, like, the reason he doesn't marry her is in case he needs to do, like, politicking with the other houses. But it is clear to everyone he is not going to take a different wife. It is clear to Lady Jessica. It is clear to him. How many more points of politicking do you need with the other houses by being unmarried? Versus, like, being faithful to your concubine for 15 years. Like, everybody knows! Yeah. I actually don't think that that is the most whack thing that Leto does to Jessica. Is it when he is suspicious of her? No, because you can kind of understand why he does it. He's in a very precarious position. As what is Duke the most whack thing he does? Okay, so when they move to Atreides... To Arrakis. Yes, sorry. When they move to Arrakis, they are unpacking uh, everything. And two of the very important possessions to the Atreides house are a portrait of uh, Leto's dad. Who Jessica hates. Who Jessica hates. And the bull that killed him, because he was like a matador for fun. And sick. Jessica is like, please, can we not hang these in the dining room again? And Duke Atreides is like, that's where they're going. Like, I have to, you know, he's my father. And also, here's the bull that killed my father. They have to be in the dining room. And then he's like, you can resume taking your meals in your room like you did before. Because Jessica's like, I literally can't eat with these with these two pieces of decor in the dining room. She's like, I can't do it. And he's like, okay, you can keep taking your meals in your room. And like, that's crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> that's wild. Oh my God. But also if you were like, I can't eat in a room where there's a picture of your dad, I would also be upset by that. Like, yeah. I don't know exactly what Jessica's beef is is with Leo's dad. Samuel, the difference is your dad is really nice. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like from the things we hear about Duke Atreides, the the previous Duke Atreides, was that he was a real dick. Yeah. Like, what Lady Jessica is saying, can we not hang the picture of your abusive father and the bull that killed him over the dinner table? That's what she's saying. Yeah. And, like, I'm not taking... You're I'm making not, a weird point. I'm not taking Duke Leto's side on this point. Because, like, that is crazy to say to the woman you love, like, you can take your meals in your room. That's fine. You were doing it before. You can do it now. Even when you have this full new chance to redecorate. Like, that's fucked up. I think Jessica is having an outsized reaction to a picture. And not to the bowl? I think it's the picture that she's taken issue with. Like, I don't think she's skeeved out because, oh, there's, like, blood dried on the horns of the bowl. Mm, I Should I find be. it? He's really, like, there's gore. No, because we're already an hour and 20 minutes in. Mm. Someone has to edit this thing. Not me. The someone being me. Not me. Um. Okay. The last question I have is, how do we feel about the concubine thing? I think it sucks. Yeah, I mean, I get my thoughts on it. I think he's making excuses. I think he could have married her. Yeah. Okay, Sam is flipping through Dune. I'm pretty sure there's gore on the horns, babe. Oh, absolutely. It's dried blood. No, I think it's not just blood. Like, I think it's chunky. What? No. Yes! That doesn't sound right. I think it's thick. Okay, everyone. I'm wrapping it up. Sam is not going to find it fast enough. I'm almost there. 
Um, next week we will be reading part two of Dune. I found it. Uh. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, Leto says to Jessica, the choices between your digestion and my ancestral dignity, my dear, they will hang in the dining hall. You may resume your custom of dining in your rooms whenever possible. I shall expect you at your proper position only on formal occasions. And don't go all cold and formal on me. Be thankful that I never married you, my dear. Then it'd be your duty to join me at the table for every meal. That's so rude. Well, and also, like, my ancestral dignity. Versus your digestion. He's dead. And also, did they, I can't figure out, did they leave all of the, all of the other nobles on Caledon? Like, was there literally just, like, the duke left? I don't know. Because, like, if there's no, like, who's gonna know that you took your dad's picture down? I don't know. I think, I think Leto's being really whack about it. Yeah, I agree. So he's not the perfect man, but Oscar Isaac. Well, even in the book, Jessica's like, sometimes he's like really cold and mean, like his father is. But for the most part, he's pretty, he's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying again. I'm wrapping it up again. We'll read part two next week. Sam will be back. Yeah. Shout out to me for saying that this one would probably be a quick episode because we were only doing a third of a book. There was a lot to explain. I think there will be less characters to meet. Although we're going to meet... Oh, no. Sam just made a big face at me. All right. This has been... This has been All My Friends Are English Majors. Follow us on Instagram at EnglishMajorsPod. Send us an email at EnglishMajorsPod at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.